This is The Future Of, a live fortnightly conversation where host Santilla Chingayape talks with creative thinkers about the brave and bold ways we can make a better future. Presented by State Library Victoria. Hi everyone, welcome to another uh, Future Of conversation brought to you by State Library Victoria. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which the State Library is located, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where I'm moderating this conversation from, uh, the Bunjalung people here in Queensland. Um, so this week's conversation, the future of, is discussing the future of Dining. I think we've all been thinking a lot about food uh, since the pandemic and to discuss what might lie ahead in terms of how we go about with our dining experiences um, is Danny Vallant and she is one of Australia's most respected food communicators and has her finger on the pulse of Melbourne, Melbourne's dining scene. She runs Bikes for Happiness, a project to deliver free bikes to visa holders living in Melbourne and worked with Chef Ben Shuri to support temporary visa holders through the pandemic via the Attica Soup Kit project. Danny is also the restaurant critic for the Sunday Age. Uh, welcome to the future of, Danny. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so much to talk about. <laughs> So much. Um, and just letting people that are tuning in that if you'd like to be involved in the conversation, you can uh, tweet or follow along using the hashtag SLVFuture. That's SLVFuture. So, Danny, um, I don't know if you were thinking about food during the pandemic. Weren't <laughs> <laughs> we all? It seemed that it was pretty much front and centre. If people weren't baking sourdough bread or attempting to, to bake um, sourdough bread, it was thinking about, you know, food being delivered and having dining experiences at home that many of us um, were missing out on um, as a result of lockdown. And so I wonder, you know, what sort of challenges did the pandemic present, you know, when it came to dining experiences? I think... So much about our experience through the pandemic was about getting back to basics and really drilling down to what was important. And I think we could see that right at the beginning when we had, you know, supermarket shortages. And I think, you know, people were like, okay, we're getting we're getting right back to essentials. What do we really need? Well, apparently we need a lot of toilet paper, um, but we also really wanted to stock up on pasta and rice and all those staples. And I think people were feeling scared and when they are scared they can do things that are not quite logical um but I think it was just about that that hoarding and that bunkering down that people felt that they really needed to do and food apart from being you know a bodily essential is so associated with comfort and people were feeling really rattled and really uncertain and they were just yeah looking to really I guess sustain themselves in a really basic way and in a way that so many people in Australia have never really had to think about before or encounter before, you know, just the very, you know, the, the very basic sort of supply chains of food, you know, people saw really for the first time for so many people in Australia how fragile it is and how much of an impact we can have when we all act in a certain way. And I guess the way that people acted at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of those runs on supermarkets was was negative. But I think it, one of the things we've seen in so many different ways through the pandemic is that our actions have impacts and it's 
highlighted so many cracks, societal cracks that were already present, but it's really brought them to the surface in, in various ways. And so I'm curious, I think I was reading something that said that um, Melbourne uh, pre-pandemic had something like 6,000 restaurants um, uh, open and as a result of the pandemic, about a third of those are expected to close. Um, Outside of those restrictions, obviously because people weren't allowed to go out and dine um, and, ex and, and experience that, how has the pandemic impacted um, restaurants and, 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 and how, and yeah, let's, let's start from that point. How has the pandemic impacted restaurants outside of, the, you know, them being forced to, to close? Well, I guess, you know, being forced to close is, was such a radical thing for a restaurant to encounter and you know speaking as a as a food journalist and someone who writes about restaurants you know you always as a freelancer you, you know the next phone call could always be you losing your gig but I never thought I'd lose my job as a restaurant reviewer because there were no restaurants to review that just um, was completely outlandish so I think you know it was it was a really foundational destabilizing of the restaurant landscape that you weren't allowed to have people into your restaurants to dine but I think what we did see was that restaurants creativity really came to the fore you know people was so adaptable and put so much energy into doing what they could do, which was to supply takeaway. So there were people being really creative in terms of, you know, the they changed the they changed what they were cooking in many cases. They changed the way that they were getting it to people. They changed a lot of back end systems. So, you know, I think we saw a, a lot of um, technology come to play in ways that it hasn't and and I suppose if you see where we are now where restaurants are open again a lot of those changes that people made are still with us so technology is definitely playing a bigger role in restaurants um, people have really looked at their costs so businesses are much leaner than they were perhaps that means you know uh, perhaps they don't have as many staff, perhaps their menus are smaller, perhaps they're playing, paying suppliers when goods are delivered rather than carrying debt because that's, you know, got a lot of businesses into trouble. So I guess there's a lot more awareness of um, the fragility uh, and people are just, just prepared to be a lot more nimble. I'm interested in that sort of disruption. Um, you've touched on the innovation that emerged as a result of, um, you know, forced closures. Um, and I'm curious about how that shifts dining experiences going forward. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that we'll go back to, um, you know, sitting quite close to each other like we're used to in some of the restaurants, like being being packed and squished quite close to each other. Um, but in terms of, yeah, like the, the, the changes to dining experiences, like like what what do you think some of the some of the ways that restaurants are being forced to adapt as a result of the pandemic, but also just long term from just a public health perspective? Sure. Well, I think we're probably all using QR codes more now than we ever have before. So we're using QR codes to check into restaurants, to leave our contact details. In many cases, we're also using those QR codes will link through to um, a web page where you can order food and pay for it. There are also apps that are coming online where you can split bills, um, order another drink. Uh, so it's that it's that interaction with an app rather than with a server. And, you know, there's so many different ways to look at that. Like it's, it, it, you could, you know, some of the negatives are that there's less human interaction. Uh, one of the major positives for businesses is that they can have fewer staff and therefore reduce the costs of doing business. Um, staffing costs are, the, you know, the, the, there's more money goes to staff than to anything else in a restaurant. So when businesses are doing it tough, they're, they're still restricted in, in numbers. As you, as you say, you know, we're not as 
as we're not as dining as closely packed as we were. Um, so while the businesses are still restricted, the, the restaurants were not hugely profitable anyway for the most part. So businesses are certainly looking at ways that they can um, reduce their staff costs. So what about, you know, things that existed pre-pandemic in restaurants, you know, open kitchens, you know, communal dining, is this something that we're going to be seeing more of in the future or less of? I mean, I mean, what, what do you think? I think really, you know, I think in Australia at the moment, dining is pretty, is, is in many ways it is as it was. So restaurants are not restructuring their buildings. Like, so kitchens aren't closing off. Um, communal dining is still a thing. I really think the only way to eat safely in restaurants is to have no or very low, like basically zero community transmission. What we're seeing, you know, in countries that are still struggling with with high case numbers, you know, they they flip flop back and forth with dining. You know, it's outdoor. It's a it's very restricted indoor. But it, there's really no way to eat safely certainly indoors, but really outdoors as well, if there is a lot of virus circulating in the community. So where there's no virus, as we're so lucky to have in Australia at the moment, fingers crossed, touch all the wood, um, then I think dining is, in that sense, is going to be pretty much as it was. Right. And so what about the challenges that are facing the industry going forward? I'm, I, 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 one of the things that you touched on uh, prior to this conversation was um, the, the issues around um, people on, on, on visas and the fact that, you know, immigration is restricted at the moment. What, what impact does that have on the sector, given that it relies quite heavily on, on migrant workers? Yeah, it's a really massive issue. And it was really clear to everyone who was in hospitality at the beginning of the pandemic that if temporary visa holders weren't looked after, that it was going to be incredibly difficult for the industry to climb out of the pandemic at the other end. And what we have seen is that a lot of visa holders um, have gone back to their countries of origin. That you know, the, our prime minister was pretty explicit in April that you know, if you weren't able to support yourself, then you should go home. And temporary visa holders were not given access to job keeper or job seeker. Um, so it was really hard for so many people, and people who've been here for years and have really built lives here were left with nothing. So. It was it was it was super tough. A lot of them have toughed it out, um, but many of them have um, gone back to where they came from, or they have travelled interstate. Where you know Melbourne, we had such a long lockdown, so a lot of people went interstate. Um, so the basic impact of that at the moment is that every restaurant, I would say certainly in Victoria, but really around the country, is struggling to find enough skilled staff. Some of the impacts on that are. You know, you, you can go back to the thing with the with the apps and the QR code. So there are some some kinds of solutions using technology, but um, what we what we are seeing is that there are people who are you know much greener and younger and and less skilled who are coming into the industry. That's fine, but it does impact the um, the level of service and kitchen skills that you have and the flow-on impacts from that might be, for example, that restaurants serve simpler food or they buy in more pre-made food. They're not filleting their own lamb, for example, or filleting their own fish. They're getting it all in pre-portioned. Um, so there's a kind of blanding out of the dining landscape in that sense. But it also means that businesses find it harder to get back on their feet. So, you know, for example, a restaurant might not be able to open for lunch simply because they don't can't staff that service. So there's the sort of always on dining um, that we've had 
uh, is changing. So some people can't open. They might have three restaurants. They can only open two of them because they simply don't have enough staff. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. It's the main thing that people are talking about in hospitality at the moment. So how do, how, do, how do we fix it? I mean, if, if, if we don't have uh, a workforce available to, to fill this gap, then clearly that um, is going to be a significant problem in the future, particularly when it comes to, you know, the availability of uh, dining experiences. Like, how, how, how do we fix it? Is it? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because, you know, what we've got, we, we haven't only lost people who've left the country. We also don't have that annual influx of backpackers that are coming in and, and perhaps they're not, you know, perhaps they're not the, they're going to be the core people in restaurants but they're certainly people who are you know doing a lot of the work so they're they're helping out in through a busy summer for example i think what's so interesting in australia with hospitality is that there aren't as many young um australian born people who see it as a viable long-term career hospitality is often seen here as something that you do while you're working towards something else um, so I think it, there is an opportunity for good employers to reshape the landscape, to draw in um, young locals and to school them up, to um, to help them see it as a viable, worthwhile um, industry to devote many years to. But, you know, then the flip side of that is, well, is it? Because it's still long hours. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it can be an unsociable industry to get into. And, you know... I don't know, uh, it's not something that a lot of, you know, school leavers' parents are probably telling them, you know, would be a great thing to do long term. So there's a, there's a cultural um, shift that would need to happen for it to be seen as more viable for a lot of people that, yeah, were born here. I find that very interesting, especially given the fact that um, some of the biggest shows on television are centred around cooking and food and, and, and celebrating that. Um, and the fact that it's not having this overall impact in in encouraging more younger people to 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 enter the sector. I wonder then, I mean, we're talking about the dining experience more broadly, but I'm curious to sort of um, look at how the pandemic has impacted perhaps family run restaurants versus the more higher end restaurants. I mean, I'd, I'd imagine that the challenges would be quite different. Yeah, definitely. I think there's probably two models of restaurant that are the most viable at the moment. And one is the very small restaurant where perhaps it's, you know, a couple where one person's in the kitchen and one person's on the floor. Um, and they're really basically doing most of the work themselves and they can really control their costs. So they don't have as many outgoings, and perhaps, you know, I'm thinking of restaurants that might have, you know, 15 seats are open four services a week and that people, everyone has to pre-book and pre-pay. So it's all very controlled. Um, so there's that. And then there's the big groups. So I think the big groups that can have economies of scale in terms of, you know, the back office sort of operations, perhaps they can have more buying power so they can reduce the cost of the their, their food and drink that they're buying. Um, those businesses, I think, are more viable. But those it's those ones in the middle um, that are, I think, struggling the most. So, yeah, I think family-run restaurants probably do have some advantages in this place, especially if they've got, you know, cousins that they can rope in to work busy services and things like that. But, yeah, it is a, it is a tricky landscape. Do you think as well, like, consumers' attitudes towards dining out has shifted? I mean, I was thinking about my first uh, experiences eating out once lockdown, uh, lockdown restrictions were eased. 
And I remember for the first time really looking at the receipt when it came back and went, whoa, I didn't realize that was how much money we spent. You know, Because obviously going from an experience where you're cooking most of your meals and if you are ordering in, it was probably not every day kind of thing. But then going back to this version of normal with a different perspective mm. and that made me really rethink how often I go out now. Um, and I wonder if that's something that you've also noticed, like consumers' um, own sort of relationship to dining um, shifting. Is that something that, that that's changing as well? Yeah, definitely. I think you've really, yeah, you really, you've really picked up on something that's, that's definitely going on. Um, yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, it was the first time that they really, you know, got stuck into cooking and they really got to know their own kitchens and perhaps they tried some new things. Perhaps they were getting some finish at home meals that our restaurants were doing. So they had a bit of an insight into how chefs put meals together. So it was, um, yeah, there certainly is that. I think, yeah, and some a lot of people didn't have as many outgoings so they could sort of see some money in the bank. So it was a funny time. I guess we saw so many different experiences. Some people were doing it so tough and some people were actually financially, you know, more secure than they had been for a, a while. It was really, yeah, really showed up some of the, yeah, differences in, in different, different people's experiences. But, yeah, it's a funny one, Santilla, because, you know, I think for the most part food is too cheap and it doesn't actually reflect the true cost of actually growing the food, of actually paying everyone properly, um, of actually, you know, running a profitable business. And that doesn't mean, you know, that you've got a Ferrari parked out the back. It just means that you are, you know, able to, um, yeah, just able to run run a business that's just humming along. Um, So... I don't know. I think people definitely put a lot more weight on every single dining experience and they want it because they hadn't been able to do it for so long. It's like each experience needed to be really special. Uh, I think some people, I heard from some people, you know, customers were coming out and they were spending big, you know, they were celebrating the fact that they were allowed to um, dine out again. They were buying the lobster. They were having the second bottle of wine. So there's that side of it. But then there's definitely, you know, the other side where um, people's expectations are really high, you know, like, this is, this is my meal. This is my money. It has to be amazing. You know, make it, make it incredible, make it worthwhile. So I think there's a lot of expectation and weight put on meals, perhaps in a way that there wasn't before. And yeah, for people who've, you know, struggled financially through the pandemic, of course, if you are dining out, you know, every dollar counts. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I think expectations are high. Money perhaps is sometimes tight and, people have noticed that they can cook more cheaply at home. Mm. And I wonder just, you touched on um, the cost of food and, and one of the forecasts has been that because, again, of a shortage of uh, skilled migrant workers, you know, we just don't have enough people picking fruit, vegetables and all sorts of things, um, which might mean that the cost of food is going to increase um, this year and, and, and in the foreseeable future. And so I sort of wonder about the knock-on impact that has on the, on the, on the sector but then also um, if the forecast, economic forecasts are to be believed that we are in a recession and things are going to get worse before they get better, I wonder all of these forces coming together, um, and yes, there's, there's perhaps been a, a, a temporary kind of um, return to some level of normal, but I wonder if that is sustainable given that a lot of the economic forecasts don't seem to point to uh, a, a, a future that would would be would be equal to pre-pandemic dining levels, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, it's such a big issue. I think basically, you know, our supply chains are to a large extent 
flawed, you know, broken in some ways. And I think, you know, a lot of, we've sort of been trained to think that food should be cheap and that's not how it should be. So, I mean, there are so many ways to sort of tackle this huge issue. One way would be to say that people are going to be smarter about the kinds of produce that they're using. So, um, whether it's secondary cuts of meat or it's just really going big on whatever vegetables are in season or it's really, um, you know, some restaurants, whether it's growing their own, um, you know, whether it's having a really strong network of local suppliers that will, you'll look after them and they'll look after you. So it might mean that there's less variety on menus. You know, you just can't expect that there's going to be you know, lamb all year round when, when the lamb prices really spike at certain times of year. Um, perhaps, you know, it won't mean that, the, I don't know, we won't, we won't be flying in so much asparagus from overseas, you know. So there might be things like that, um, but perhaps there will also be a bit of um, a sort of stratification of dining, you know. Perhaps meals will either be really cheap or really expensive and dining will go back to being more of that special occasion where it is something that you save up for and you look forward to. You don't take it so much for granted, but it is really at that premium level. And then, you know, there's this other layer of dining which is much more daily and it's more simple, um, it's more snacky, but yeah, with a limited menu. Mm. It almost seems like it would also be a good thing for the environment if, if, if more seasonal produce was used rather than, you know, having access to certain food all year round. That obviously clearly has, a, has, an, has an impact on the environment. And I wonder then, you talked before about how you don't necessarily see a shift in the dining experiences and whether or not we're going to move away from communal dining and all of that. But I do wonder in terms of um, models that we might be seeing more of, um, you touched on the sort of farm to table model. And I'm curious to sort of think about that as perhaps a sustainable way of uh, creating dining experiences where, you know, you are reducing some of those supply chain costs, um, but also ensuring that you are celebrating seasonal produce um, and it is a little bit more accessible for diners. Like, do you think that that's something that might be embraced a little bit more going forward? Yeah, I think so. In in some cases it will. I mean, I think one thing that a lot of people noticed during lockdown, you know, if people started creating a vegetable garden, which a lot of people did, or whether it's just some pots on the balcony or the windowsill, people realise it's actually really hard to grow food. So, you know, I think in some ways that's great because people value it more and value the project of growing it. I think a lot of restaurants have dabbled in, you know, growing a bit of produce and realised it's actually really hard. It's this whole other thing. Um, so I don't think it's going to become a normal thing, but I think there will be some really incredible sort of showcase restaurants that demonstrate that model and people can sort of pluck bits from it. So, I mean, for example, at Federation Square at the moment, there's a home and restaurant called Future Food System, which is the, the temporary home of two chefs, uh, Matt Stone and Joe Barrett. And this is a house that grows food. So it's like a closed loop, closed loop system. They've got a little fish farm there. They're growing a lot of vegetables. Um, they're growing chickpeas. You know, it's um, it's really incredible. And it's a showcase. Not everyone is going to, you know, start, suddenly start growing food on their roof, but it shows the kinds of things that some of us would be able to tap into. And they're serving meals. They're running it as a, as a pop-up restaurant as well. So it's a bit of a showcase in that regard. There's another restaurant that springs to mind, which is called Oh My, and that's in Beaconsfield. And they do grow all their produce on their own farm and they use every part of it. So, for example, one of their great dishes 
celebrates the pumpkin. So they use, you know, the pumpkin skin, they use the seeds, they use the flesh, the pumpkin water, it turns up in something else. So pumpkin is sort of threaded through their menu in a way that celebrates it and honours it. And they can explain, you know, the story that comes through is that nothing hits the bin. And I think that those kinds of um, prototypes, I guess, we're not all going to do that, but we can all think about ways that we can utilise different parts of the vegetable and, and try to reduce waste. That's something that we can take on as, as restaurateurs and as home cooks for sure. Mm. And are there any other examples that you think that, that um, certain restaurants are, are, are sort of perhaps setting a good template for what the future of dining might look like? Uh I think really respect is a great one. So I think restaurants that are showing, you know, respect for for people, for produce, for the planet, I think, um, and maybe resilience and agility, I guess it's some of those personal qualities that people in hospitality really showed. Um, I think, you know, it's, I've been really inspired by, um, by restaurant people that I've been in touch with through the pandemic and just how resilient they are, how creative they've been and, just the way that they can demonstrate the connections between, you know, like labour markets, um, natural, you know, weather cycles, um, farming, you know, the way that food gets from one place to another. So, yeah, it is, there is, I think, I mean, the reason that I love working in and around food is that it touches so many different aspects of life. You know, it's, it's, it's climate, it's, um, it's science, it's history, it's culture, it's people. It's, um, yeah, it's threaded, it's threaded through everything. And I understand that you were working on a specific project during uh, lockdown to support some of the workers um, in the sector that were on temporary visas. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I worked with um, Ben Shuri from Attica Restaurant, as you mentioned in your intro, and we um, right at, right at the start of the like like at the end of March, we were like, okay, no one's looking after the temporary visa holders. We need them in hospitality, and we need them not to get sick, and um, we uh, believe in basic social justice, which is everybody who's here should be looked after. Um, to me, it was really obvious. I just was really surprised again and again that the government didn't, or the federal government didn't step in and help those people. So our project was really small. We just, um, we made soup once a week and we gave it away um, cold with a bunch, which, with groceries and bread and other bits and pieces once a week to a small um, community of temporary visa holders who'd lost their jobs in hospitality. And um, yeah, look, I got to know some amazing people and heard some, you know, really tough stories. And for the most part, it's been really heartening to see those people get back on their feet and find work um, as the industry has recovered. But, you know, even up to last week, it wasn't formalised that temporary visa holders would have access to the vaccine. And to me, it's just insane that that's even a question that, you know, you don't look after everybody that's here. Um, and I think, I think hopefully something that we realised through the pandemic is, you know, that there's that whole, you know, we're, we're in it together, you know, but apparently we're not you know, to get all of all doesn't include everybody apparently. Um, but to me, uh, yeah, you just you just need to look after everybody that's in the community. So I would say, you know, temporary visa holders for sure, refugees, absolutely. Um, you know, anybody who needs um, just, a, just a little bit of help to get up to the level, like they've got to be brought along. 
And I wonder, just staying with that, you know, this idea of, I mean, what responsibility then do we have as diners? Because clearly, you know, the, the people that are undertaking this labour are in these precarious situations and, um, and aren't being looked after, um, as you say, as they should by the government. I mean, what responsibility then lies on, the, on, on diners themselves as well to sort of um, ensure that these people are being looked after um, and are being treated fairly and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, because clearly people people aren't necessarily thinking about who's making their dinner or who's delivering it, right? Like people are just thinking about the meals run in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so there, there has to be a responsibility that's put back on us, you know, to really think about how that meal got to us, who prepared it, and therefore what responsibility we have in ensuring that they're also looked after the same way that we are. Yeah, I would say a really basic way to do that is to be careful of things that are too cheap or just seem crazily cheap. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned delivery. It's, I think that's a really obvious one. Like I don't use the delivery apps and in some ways you can say, okay, but then those people are getting less work and less money, but I just think I can't support a system that, um, yeah, has been shown in so many different ways to not look after the people that are working for it um so if I was to order takeaway from a restaurant I would always order it directly and then go and pick it up or if they did their own delivery then I'll pay for that um but I think you know generally if you're buying really cheap food it's like that's being that's being paid for somewhere along the line so is it that the people that are making it aren't being paid properly is it that that's you know factory farmed meat where the animals aren't being treated well uh, so, I mean, there is always, there is always a cost. Sometimes it's just hidden. So I would be careful about that. And so, you know, I would choose, if I'm getting dumplings, perhaps I would choose the vegetarian ones because I would just choose to not support meat that I can be pretty sure is, um, in, is farmed in a way that I, I don't feel okay about. Um, so I guess it's about choosing how and where to spend your money. That's the that's the basic power that consumers have got. And I suppose beyond that, there's um, there's agitation. Like you know, are you talking to your MP about um, the IR laws that are going uh, before federal parliament at the moment? For example, like that's just one thing. I have to say, I, I don't think I've ever thought about the meat in my dumplings <laughs> before. You you just raise them. It's just something you don't think about, right? But of course. Um, no, that's a very good point that you raise. Um, I have a, a ton of questions to ask you, but I just realised that we're out of time. Um, so I really do want to thank you for um, your time, your insights. Um, and yeah, it was just been such a pleasure speaking to you. Yes. Same. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Santilla. It's awesome to speak to you as well. And thank you to also to everyone that's been tuning in um, to this conversation. And if you want to catch up, not just on this conversation, but on previous Future Of conversations, um, just uh, visit the State Library Victoria website and you can find the podcast there. The Future Of is a fortnightly conversation produced by State Library Victoria. To help make a brighter future for the series, please subscribe, rate, leave a review or share it with your friends. You've been listening to The Future Of. To find out more, visit slv.vic.gov.au and search for The Future Of.